before we jump in this morning. One is it's Palm Sunday, and this message really isn't going to tie in at all, so apologies for that. But we'll acknowledge Palm Sunday when we get to the worship time. The other is this. uh, We're in the story of Noah's Ark this morning, and you know, it's a big story. It covers a few chapters, and in my own mind, it carries such hype, some ways positive, some ways negative, that it it feels it hard to do justice to the story, especially the part that we'll cover this morning. And as I've studied and prepared for these teachings, you're trying to uh, dice up this narrative in ways that make sense on one hand and give appropriate application. Hi, dear. And, uh, and on the other, don't provide too much repetition. So it's kind of hard to do justice to some stories in the Scriptures, and for me, this is one of them. But we'll be in Genesis 6, verse 10 through seven sixteen. It's a lengthy passage, and we'll just make a few points of application. We'll cover some highlights or some high points, so there probably be many things not spoken or talked about that you might have interest in. And if you do and we talk later, let me know. Genesis 6.10 through 7.16, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth." Here at verse 14 will be the only place I make interruption in this reading, but I want, I want to talk about a few Hebrew words in this verse. Verse 14, make for yourself an ark. The Hebrew is tebah, and it means either a box or a castle. John Salehammer argues uh, it means castle. Therefore, it would mean like a castle on the sea. It at least means a box. The only other place in the Pentateuch where this word for ark is used is of Moses in a basket on the waters of the Nile being saved from judgment of death. So there's clearly, God intends to see a correlation between those two. This is not the same Hebrew word that's used of the ark of the covenant, two separate words entirely. We translate them both ark, but they're not the same Hebrew word. So it's it's an ark, it's a box, or it's a castle that's going to be on the waters. It's made of gopher wood. Uh, Yours might say cypress wood. There's really, they don't know what this is. They don't know what kind of wood this is. The Hebrew for gopher, the consonants kind of sound like cypress. So yours might say cypress wood also because it was decay resistant and was used in shipbuilding in the past. They don't know that at all though. But gopher wood and then make an ark with rooms and cover it inside and out with pitch. The Hebrew for rooms is cane, and that means literally nests. So uh, when you make this ark, uh, this box or this castle that will float on the seas of this specific kind of wood, uh, you're going to make nests in it. This makes sense if you're thinking about animals, you know, or if you're a farmer. It's nests. It's not just stalls or rooms. It's nests for the animals. Okay, without further interruption, verse 15, this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. Set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. 
Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind them. Lengthy passage. This may be the longest one I think I've ever taught through. Uh, first, just looking at the ark... Um, you know, this story, hi Juan, you can come in. Uh, the story of Noah's Ark, it's like Jonah and the fish. You know, it's one of those stories that it's kind of held up to ridicule because it's treated as a fairy tale or a myth. And you know, on one hand, Christians kind of help along with this. Uh, decorators, I'm thinking, of women, you know, with all the cute Noah's Ark thing with the giraffe's head sticking out, you know, the window and puzzles and stuff. And it's it's whatever, cosmetically, whatever, it's kind of treated as, as a fairy tale. So one of the things that comes up immediately, and, and this is certainly true today, and again with, with everything just about that's in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is it really true? Is the story credible? Was there really such a person? Was there really such a boat, such an ark, etc.? We'll touch on a few arguments or issues related to Noah and the ark and the probability of such a thing being possible. But you'll have, I'm sure, if you think about this or if you interact with others, you'll have more questions than I'm going to touch base on this morning. Answers in Genesis.org. 
Ken Ham's group, they have just a ton of stuff on this, apologetic stuff, talking about how such a thing could be, what that would look like potentially, etc. And there's links at their site. So if you just wanted one place to look at online, AnswersInGenesis.org would be a good place to start. Physically though, the boat we're talking about, 300 cubits, 50 cubits wide, uh, 30 cubits tall, a cubit's about a foot and a half. So your Bible may have that in cubits or feet, but 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. You know, no matter what time or age you look at, this is a big boat. And you know, you try and put scale or perspective to that scale. So if you were sitting in a football stadium, that boat is as long as a football field and a half. So it's very long. It's about half the width of that football field. It's very wide. And it's four to five stories tall. So, I mean, if you just try and figure in your mind's eye, it is huge. Physically, it's intimidating to think about it. It is a huge, huge boat. On the other side, by today's scale, it's not that big. It is big by, by in, historically in any time, but once we started building steel ships, that ark doesn't look so big anymore. If you look, Queen Mary II's over 1,000 feet long. Uh, the Titanic was over 800 feet long. The ark, by today's standards, it's a mid-sized transport ship. But, you know, when you think back historically, back to times before the technology we have now, it becomes how did they build such a large structure? Is it even possible? Uh, also, just on volume of this boat, 522 railroad cars, about 522 railroad cars in volume. You know, if you see a circus come through town, what, they might have 20 cars? You know, you're looking at something over 500 railroad cars in volume as far as the space available within this large structure. Also, there are three levels. It's not just big, but it's got three levels, and those levels are carved up into stalls or nests or whatever, so we've got places for all the animals and the people. Then it's got a window along the upper foot and a half or so for light and for air, for ventilation, and then it's covered inside and out with pitch to make it watertight. So one of the questions immediately comes up, could Noah really have built a wooden boat this big? Is it possible that Noah built in this time a boat of this size, this volume? Uh, You know, there's actually, Noah's Ark is not unique in history as far as wooden boats of this size. We've, We've got in writing from antiquity other boats, both commercial transports and warships made of wood this same size, a little bigger and a little smaller. So even though we think this is unique on one level, on another level, they were building boats, wooden boats of this size after Noah in the Mediterranean, sailing them around. They were fit to go through the storms of the Mediterranean. They were fit to serve in battles in which ships were ramming other ships. So at that level, Noah's Ark isn't unique. It's like other boats we know of from antiquity. Also, you remember in Genesis 6, 3, that God told Noah, the, um, I'm going to give man 120 years. And we said probably the best way to understand that is from the time God spoke about the judgment of the flood, it would be 120 years before the waters of the flood came. You know, you can do a lot in 120 years. You can build a lot in 120 years, Noah and his family. That's a long time to build. And also, the story doesn't tell us, but if Noah wanted to, Noah could have hired help to put up all or part of the boat. So it didn't just have to be Noah and the boys. It could have been Noah hiring local framers or artisans or whatever. 
So to the incredulous question, could Noah really have built a boat that size? And would a boat, a wooden boat of that size, really work nautically? The answer is yes, it would. And yes, he could. Probably the question, I've heard this from those uh, who say they're Christians and those who aren't. The bigger question is, would there really be room in the ark for all those animals? Have you guys heard the same question? It's incredulous, right? There's no way there'd be room in that boat for all those animals. And that's an issue. There's a lot of animals. Uh, Two of every kind, which means birds or land animals, two of every kind. And then of what are called the clean animals, which means, uh, from the Hebrew perspective, it means they're the kind of animals you would offer to God on the altar and or they're the kind of animals you're free to eat. Seven pairs of those. So we are talking about a lot of animals. Uh, One generous estimation is that there were up to 16,000 animals on the ark. That's a generous speculation, up to 16,000. There could have been significantly less than that. And the number, the variation in that number is based on when God says bring two of every kind, it's what does the kind mean? So for instance, today, I don't know how many breeds of dogs there are, but they're all dogs. Are you with me? Foxes are dogs. Uh, Wolves are dogs. There's variety. So did Noah bring wolves and foxes and domestic dogs or did he bring two dogs from which we get all the families of dogs underneath? We don't know. That's why you'd say there's, there could, they say, be as few as 2,000, but more likely something towards the high end or something in the middle anyway. So for sure, there were a lot of animals. Now generally when we're thinking about the size problem, we're thinking of what? We're thinking of elephants and giraffes and rhinos. And if we take, keep our thinking going, we're thinking of brontosauruses and T-Rex, right? Dinosaurs of the immense, huge scale, right? Now, this isn't, on one level, this isn't hard for me. You know, if I don't want to believe something, I'm not going to believe it. But if I was commissioned with this job, really, and God said, bring two of every kind, do you think I would choose the full-grown elephants or the baby elephants? If I've got to feed them and clean up after them, which do you think I'm going to choose? <laughs> and if I've got, if I need to take T-Rex, a pair of T-Rex, do you think I'm going to take, I don't know what the tonnage is, the big ones? Or do you think I'm going to take the little ones? Less trouble, less food, less problems. I'm going to take the little ones. So in all probability... Uh, I don't think I'm smarter than Noah, and I don't think I'm smarter than God, who apparently drove the animals to Noah to get on the ark. I'm taking the little guys. I'm not fighting with the big guys. I've just saved a bunch of space there alone. I'm not taking the full-grown ones. If it's a huge animal, I'm going to take the adolescence or the smaller version, and I've saved a bunch of space there. I don't need to worry about the big mastodons, etc. I'm taking the baby ones. Also, there's another... um, aspect as far as how much space they required. You know, some animals uh, in the winter or if there's not much rain, some animals will will hibernate, right? Or some animals will, in times when there's not much food or water available, if not uh, what we call real hibernation, their activity level will slow slow down dramatically. So there's a good chance, too, that as far as space and food needs, that some of the animals, at least, wouldn't have required that much during their time on the ark. They might have hibernated, they might have slept a lot, their body uh, metabolism may have slowed down, those nests, they may have taken a nice 
long nap in those nests in the ark. But we don't have to assume that they are expending the kind of energy and that they required the kind of room that we would, for instance, in a zoo today at all. Also, the carnivores, um, you know, were the T-Rexes eating the deer or whatever. Um, You guys know in the original creation, of course, animals wouldn't have eaten other animals. Everything would have been an herbivore. Remember, death didn't exist on the earth before Adam's sin. So what they're eating now, we're not sure. You know, Isaiah talks about a day when lions eat straw like ox. Uh, Maybe they were just eating as herbivores on the ark. We don't know. Even if they weren't, though, if they were eating meat, Noah could have brought along additional animals as food. Uh, You know, sailors in the whaling days, they would take along giant tortoises because the tortoises required next to no food or water, and they were available as a food source whenever they were needed. So this doesn't appear to be a problem. Also, just as far as space, even with this generous allowance for the total number of animals, they still would have occupied less than half the space of the ark. So in other words, there would have been plenty of room left for food and for water and for the small family that was on board. It's also thought likely that Noah and the boys would have built in some trough-style feeds so it would be easier to feed the animals, it would be easier to water the animals, it would minimize the amount of work. I mean, you know, anybody working in a zoo is busy, but if you, this zoo would have been a big task anyway you slice it. So we assume where they could, they built in labor-saving means of taking care of the animals. So could Noah really, in that time, have built a boat that big? Would it have been seaworthy? And could you really have a space and the available space for food for animals and everything else that needed to be on board? And you'd have to say yes to both questions. Yes, there would be enough room. Yes, he could have built it. Yes, it would have been seaworthy. Uh, It wasn't just Noah that got on board this ship. Uh, Genesis 6.18, if you look at that, God says, I'll establish my covenant with you, with you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 7.1, enter the ark, you and all your household. Genesis 7.7, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark. And Genesis 7. 13, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his son with them entered the ark. And the key point here is it wasn't just Noah that entered the ark. It was Noah and his family. It was Noah and his family. He didn't build the ark by himself, and he didn't enter the ark alone. He brought his family with him, and God's call And God's covenant with Noah was to Noah and his family. Noah brought his family with him on the ark. And you see throughout the scriptures, maybe uh, we don't see this so much uh, in our culture today, um, where authority structures and systems of culture are frowned on. But traditionally, uh, God would call out a leader And the leader would bring his family or his tribe or his group with him. Does this make sense? So that, for instance, in the New Testament, when Peter speaks to the Israelites in Acts 2.39, after the crucifixion, and he tells them they need to repent for their view and their actions towards the promised Messiah, Jesus, he says, 
that the promise, that is the promise of the Holy Spirit given through faith in Christ, is for you and it's for your children. It's not just for you alone as adults. That promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children. Or for instance, in Acts 16.31, when that jailer in Philippi was asking Paul how to be saved, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. You and your household, just like Noah. Noah brings all his family with him onto the ark, into this place of salvation from judgment and deliverance. Noah brings his family with him. And God loves and God delights to bring families into the ark, if you will. It's not that we as parents or we as individual leaders have the power or the ability that the Holy Spirit does to bring people to faith, but we have this responsibility to bring along in the ways that we're able to, those we're responsible, bring them with us to this place of deliverance or salvation or preservation from judgment. If you're a parent, if you're a Christian parent, your single greatest responsibility in life is to introduce your kids to Christ. If you don't do anything else in life but get your kids into the ark, into a saving relationship with Christ with you, you, that's great. If you don't do anything else, if you did everything else in life that you could, that people count as success, and didn't do what's in your power to bring your kids with you into the ark, which is Christ, at the end of the day, would you say your life had been a success or not? Now again, I'm not saying parents, leaders, patriarchs, whatever, however you think of it. It's not that individuals have the power to do what only the Holy Spirit does. But we have a responsibility under God to do what is in our power, to lead our children to faith in Christ, just as Noah brought his family with him onto the ark. So, introduce your children to Christ as early as you can. And you know, you do that by taking them through the scriptures. For instance, you read the story of Noah's ark. And you point out that the kids went with the dad into the ark. That's a good place to start. But you take them through the scriptures or you think of Paul's uh, Words to Timothy when he says, From childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy, since you were a little kid, your mother and your grandmother, they taught you from God's Word those words that led you to life. So as parents, again, your single greatest responsibility is to introduce your children to Christ. It's to get them, like Noah did, into the ark with you. It's also to compel, by whatever means necessary, obedience. And by the way, when I say this, if you know my wife and I, uh, we love parenting. We still love parenting. Uh, We took parenting seriously. It's kind of been our, uh, raising a family was kind of our uh, dream for this life. You know, I'm I'm a grown guy. My kids are grown. I don't know what the second half of my life will look like. Because I've, I've done, I've fulfilled my dream. I've raised my family. So it's something I've, I've loved. Uh, and loving that, uh, we told our girls, uh, we will win all the time. Uh, in the battle of the wills, in the contest of will you obey or will you not obey, we will win every time. And uh, we're very intentional about this. And, and we'll find your points 
that you think you value, whatever you value, we're going to work with those things. We're going to work with you. We'll make your life painful and unbearable when we need to so that you obey. And I told them I will be a benevolent dictator in your life. Now, having said all that, we laugh, which is good. It is humorous, but <clears throat> the bottom line is we didn't care if we impressed others with parenting by compliant children. I mean, who cares? We didn't care if we impressed family because our kids were obedient. But we knew that if our children obeyed us, they were prepared to obey God. And that parents stand in the place of God for little children. They don't know God, but they know you as their parent. So when your children learn to obey you, to respect and obey you, they're learning to respect and obey God. And as they grow from young children to young adults to adults, the biblical hope is that they transfer that respect and obedience from parents to God. And obedience is an issue in this story, which is the reason I'm bringing it up here. Genesis 6:22, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Genesis 7:5, Noah did according to all that the Lord God had commanded him. Obedience is an issue in Noah's deliverance story. Noah's obedience meant there was an ark to get on. Noah's obedience meant that the vehicle, the means by which God had determined to save mankind, was prepared because Noah obeyed. You know, in this story, even the animals obey. And because they obey, they're saved. Genesis 7, 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded. Obedient children isn't about impressing others. It's not about making your life easier. It's about preparing your kids to obey God and therefore find life. Obedience is one of the themes in this story of deliverance. Obedience saves you from judgment and allows you to enjoy life. So as Christian parents, you want to introduce your children to Christ early, you want to get them on the ark with you, but you don't want to stop there. You want to introduce them to the concept of obedience because obedience will not only deliver them in the future, it will allow them to enjoy life as God means them to. <clears throat> Faith, get them in the ark, and obedience. You know, an aspect of this deliverance story that I just don't hear much about uh, is this. The ark was the only way out of judgment, but it wasn't pretty. The ark was the only way to be saved from this flood, but it wasn't pretty. Now, let's let this thing sink in for just a minute. If I told you that my vacation plan for you for about a year, was to live in a manure box. What would you think? How appealing would that be to you? Now just think, just for a minute, it's a big boat, it's filled with animals and food. And animals do what animals do best, right? The ones that are awake or whatever, they're eating, and they're leaving the remains behind. And you've got a window, but it's, it's up in the tall part there which means there'd be some ventilation and light, but not a lot. And you're living in a zoo. And what does that smell like? This would not be my idea of the way to be delivered, right? Uh, I'm on a carnival cruise, Lord. Yes, I'll take that ship and, I'll, and I'm good to go. No. I'm in a, in a box filled with manure for about a year. 
That's my means of deliverance. Are you with me? There's deliverance, but it's not pretty, and it doesn't smell nice. Think about this. If you're one of the family members on the ark, and you load up and you start on your journey, you know, that, that smell starts getting to you, maybe before you are desensitized to it. And you're thinking, man, I'd sure rather be someplace else, doing something else. But contrast that if you're one of the people that's not in the ark and the rains come down. What would your perspective be? You'd give anything to be in that ark. Because no matter how smelly or dark or stinky or how far short of your goal for deliverance it looks, if you're on the ark, you're alive. And if you're not on the ark, you're dead. So it was deliverance, but it certainly wasn't pretty. People will tell you today, there's got to be many ways to heaven, right? There's there's many paths to God. And and if I'm sincere and you're sincere, even if we disagree with each other, we'll all get there. Because God's like you and me. He's a nice guy. He's understanding. and Gosh, we'll all get there. We'll just get there by different paths. If you were in Noah's day, where would that attitude have left you? Dead. Drowned. Where do you think that attitude leaves people today? Dead. Eternally. Dead eternally. All paths do not go to heaven. If they do, Jesus is a liar. Because He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Noah's ark was exclusive, small-minded, narrow-minded. If you were on the ark, you were saved. If you were not on the ark, didn't matter where else you were, didn't matter what you believed, didn't matter who your friends were, didn't matter how much money you made, didn't matter how sincere you were, if you were not on the ark, you were dead. And guys, the same thing applies today as narrow-minded, as small, as bigoted, as whatever you want, whatever terms the world tells Christians, our viewpoint is, Noah's Ark, that's still kind of the, that's the model. You're in or you're out. You're saved or you're not. You're on or you're not. That's as simple as it still is today. Genesis 7.21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Genesis 7.22, all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, died. It was simple. There was a means of deliverance, but it wasn't pretty. But it was deliverance. It was life. And the choice was life or death and nothing in between. You remember last week we said uh, God judges sin in part because He must. He must judge sin. He's holy, so He can't let sin go unjudged. We also talked about the fact that God's judgment did fall and it fell violently like a storm on His Son, on Jesus, on the cross. And that awful penalty for sin, the judgment of death, did fall on Christ. And Christ, when we read that story of Noah and the ark, we do need to get past the credulity, that is, could it really have happened, to the point there was judgment And you were saved or you weren't. Because that's the point that applies today. The application for you and I still continues today. Christ is the ark. Are we in or are we out? 
Are our family members in or are they out? Are our children in or are they out? Have we introduced others to Christ? Remember, Peter calls Noah that preacher of righteousness. The Old Testament doesn't tell us what he preached, but he was building that boat and he took his family in. We assume he said a few things to his neighbors as well. And we're called to be that same kind of Noah. There's an ark today, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the only way to the Father. His words, not mine. And you may not like the thought of the exclusive claim of Christ. But whether you do or not makes no difference in the end. The people who thought Noah was too exclusive drowned in the flood. The only ones who lived to see another day were those in the ark. Let me close with these two thoughts. Um, I'm terrible with the Hebrew too, Randall, but I do use my resources and and I read. You know when it says in verse 14, Genesis 6, that the the ark was covered with pitch inside and out? Uh, Pitch, of course, would have waterproofed it, right? But it's interesting that the Hebrew term for pitch is kofer. And kofer doesn't mean just pitch, it also means ransom. And it comes from the Hebrew kippurim, which means atonement. So when we say the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, we're saying the day of atonement. So picture this. God looks down on Noah and his family in the ark, and he sees them through the atonement. The pitch is atonement. And when God looks down on you or anybody who's placed faith in Christ today, it's the same thing. He sees you and I through the atonement, through the blood of the Lamb. So pitch physically waterproofed the ark. But pitch, if you will, metaphorically, said the ark is covered by an atonement. And Jesus seen today as our ark, it's the blood of the Lamb that covers our sin. So that when God looks down at you or I today, He sees us through the blood, the pitch, of the atonement. We're in Christ the ark. We're covered by the ransom Christ paid for us. And lastly, along the same line, Genesis 7, 16, the Lord closed the door behind Him. If you're a dad, you probably do this too. At night, before I go to bed, I check the door and I lock it. I make sure the door is secure. When Noah and all the animals got inside the ark, it was God who closed the door, which I take to mean this. It was secure. Once you were in that ark, the door wasn't going to fall open because God had closed it. God had secured the door. If I'm in that ark, I'm good to go. The door's not going to fall open. The waters of judgment are not going to pour in. God provided the ark for me. I'm in it. It's covered with pitch, and He closed the door. Guess what? I feel pretty safe. This reminds me of the passage in John 10 where Jesus talks about the fact that those who've trusted Him are in His hand. And His hand is in the Father's hand. How safe do you feel if you're in Christ's hand, the omnipotent God? And His hand is covered by His Father's hand, the omnipotent God. How safe do you think you should feel? No matter what's going on around you, how righteous you feel this day or how unrighteous you feel this day, 
Are you with me? God closes the door and the ark, you're within a container that's covered by an adequate ransom. You and I are in that same thing today in Christ. We are safe in Christ, covered by an adequate ransom, and God has closed the door. When people talk to you about incredulity, about Noah's ark, I'm thinking, get a clue. It's all plausible. It's likely. It's better than possible. It makes sense. I think our incredulity should be as to why God would have had His Son die on a cross for people like you and me. Don't you think? The, credulity is not, the incredulity is not with the story. It's with us. The incredulity is that God would send His Son to die for people like us, just like the people in Noah's day. We've got an ark. We should bring everybody in to the degree we're, we're able to with us. And when we're in that ark, guys, we're safe. We're covered by a ransom. God has closed the door. We're good to go. The judgment can fall. And we may be in that boat and it may be rocking side to side, but we are safe in the ark through the flood of God's judgment in Christ the ark. Father, for those who won't believe, all the evidence in the world is inadequate. Jesus, I think about your words in Luke that even if a man should rise from the dead, people wouldn't believe his words. Father, I pray that you will help us save our incredulity for the things that shouldn't be believed, but not towards you, a God who can't lie not towards you, a God who's demonstrated His love for us in giving the life of His own Son to ransom us. Father, thanks that you saved someone just like us, Noah and his family. Lord, help us to be responsible in sharing the hope we have in Christ with our kids, with our family, with our neighbors. Father, thanks that those in Christ are eternally safe in your hands as surely as Noah and his family were in that ark. In Jesus' name, amen.